0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear the penultimate conjecture
1: by Leonard Michaels. He should have taken the risk. He should have been more like Lindquist, more manly. Enough, Nachman, said Nachman to himself. The story was chosen by Rebecca Curtis, whose fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since
0: 2001. Her collection of stories, 20 Grand and Other Tales of Love and Money, came out in 2007. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Now Leonard Michaels died in 2003, which was four years after
1: this story was published. Were you reading his work back then? I think the first time I read his story was probably in an anthology, actually in The Best American. I think I read Girl with a Monkey and (laughs) was very struck by it because it's such a sexy story, but also very dark and very taut and condensed and mm-hmm. and also murderers. George Saunders taught us murderers in the MFA program I was at in Syracuse. What was it about his style that drew you in? I mean I think like Isaac Babel, he has a way of punching dramatic impact into very short sentences and having very quick ninety degree turns in meaning and in tone and emotion within a very short sentence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The story that you're going to read,
0: the penultimate conjecture, is about a mathematician called Raphael Nachman. And it's one in a series of seven stories that Michaels wrote in the last six years of his life, which are all about Nachman. Have you read the other ones?
1: I have. I love have. the Nachman stories. Yeah. How do you think
0: that the Nachman stories differ from those first things that you read? I don't think they're earlier? that different
1: from Girl with a Monkey. Mm-hmm. The Nachman stories, the prose feels fairly straightforward. The stories are linear. It feels like realism with thoughts about existential issues, but it's fairly simple. I guess people would say accessible prose. Mm -hmm. There's nothing Mm -hmm. too fancy or too experimental or artsy about it. Whereas a lot of his earlier stories like Murderers or the stories from around that time are very dense. They're more language-based. There's not as much plot, not much narrative. They're harder to read. They're equally good or beautiful, but I I think probably like a lot of people, I tend to prefer the Nachman stories because you get immersed in the story. It's just very easy to read and the dense metaphysical stuff just kind of flows over you. Yeah.
0: So among the Nachman stories, what is it that makes the penultimate conjecture stand out for you?
1: Well, it is a little bit fantastical in that there's one character named Chertoff And sort of like Satan seems to have knowledge of things that he can't have knowledge of and to say exactly the things that will tempt Nachman at the right or wrong times. Mm -hmm. So it seems kind of Faustian.
0: Yeah, it has a little more fantasy thrown in than some of the other ones. Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Rebecca Curtis reading the penultimate conjecture by Leonard Michaels.
1: From the beach in Santa Monica... Knockman could look across the water toward LAX and watch airplanes take off and land. The sight reminded him that he hated to travel. Nevertheless, he decided to make the short flight to San Francisco, where he would attend this year's meeting of the Pythagoras Society, an international organization dedicated to pure mathematics. Knockman wanted to hear the featured talk on the penultimate conjecture, it would be given by the Swedish mathematician, Bjorn Linquist. Nachman packed a clean shirt, a razor, a toothbrush, and a change of underwear and socks, though he planned to return the same day. He didn't expect to become involved in a discussion, and could think of no friends he might meet in San Francisco who would cause him to prolong his stay. But any trip held unpredictable elements. Every time you walk out of your house, thought Nachman, and then let it go. He was aware of a compulsive strain in his thinking. Razor, toothbrush, underwear, socks, and shirt went into his briefcase, along with a writing pad and some ballpoint pens. He added a bottle of aspirin, too, as if he expected to have a headache. At the airport, he bought a package of chewing gum to help relieve the anticipated pain in his ears on takeoff and landing. He particularly disliked flying, with its discomforts and terrors also having to breathe unhealthy gases. The flight was uneventful except for ten minutes of turbulence. However, shortly before landing, an argument erupted a few rows behind Nachman. A passenger and a flight attendant were yelling. It was about something serious. When the plane landed, police rushed into the cabin. Nachman heard shouts amid the commotion of a struggle as he shoved past the passengers in the aisle, who were gaping toward the rear. "'What the hell happened?' asked a man at the front of the plane, his eyes wild and prurient, crazed with desire for information. "'How would I know?' said Nachman, pulling his arm free of the man's grip and pushing by him. He didn't know because he'd been thinking about the penultimate conjecture and scribbling notes throughout the commotion. He continued thinking about it as he walked through the airport to the taxi stand. Television reporters lugging a camera went by, rushing in the direction Nachman had come from. The problem of the penultimate conjecture was formulated during the Second World War by brilliant English cryptographers who broke the German code Enigma. Germans, also brilliant, broke English codes. Obscure men, and some women, who had a knack for solving puzzles, analyzed the coded messages of the enemy, so that nameless soldiers, sailors, and airmen could be blown to bits, drowned, burned alive. A proof of the penultimate conjecture would have no such practical consequences, at least none yet known. But for mathematicians, it was a glamorous problem, indirectly associated with horrendous violence. As a graduate student, Nachman had brooded over it. The problem was exceedingly difficult. He was afraid he might spend years on it and fail to prove anything. A mathematician had only so much time. Nachman then turned to other problems— and built a reputation for solid, indispensable work. Bjorn Linquist would know the name Nachman. As for Linquist's reputation, it rested on a number of dazzling publications, all co-authored. Mathematicians worked together more than they had in previous years. Linquist's name appeared first on the publications he co-authored. He was considered a genius for his ability to see the implications of the work of others, and also for his devastating questions. In San Francisco, Linquist would be the one who was questioned. The sole author of his lecture on the penultimate conjecture, Linquist had taken the risk Nachman cautiously declined, making a bid for greatness, something beyond mere reputation. Nachman, who was unusually slow, was never asked to collaborate. It didn't much matter. He preferred to work alone. He had sometimes wondered about returning to the penultimate conjecture but he assumed that even if many mathematicians engaged it seriously, none would be successful. When he was ready, Nachman imagined, the problem would be waiting for him like Penelope watching for Odysseus. Suddenly, it was too late. According to gossip, Linquist had an amazing proof. As if the problem had been stolen from him, Nachman was somewhat hurt and suffered a touch of jealousy, but he felt no ill will toward Linquist. He wanted only to see Linquist demonstrate his proof. Nachman was extremely curious. He didn't want to wait for Linquist to publish his proof on the computer or in a paper, but wanted to see him do it in person, in public. Nothing else would have made Nachman buy his own ticket to go to San Francisco in a terrifying airplane, breathing plague. The taxi from the airport arrived at the hotel an hour before Linquist's scheduled talk. Nachman sat in the lobby reviewing the notes on the penultimate conjecture that he'd made feverishly during the hour-long flight. He'd worked more quickly than ever before, as if fueled by drugs, and it almost seemed, now that it was too late, that Nachman was approaching a solution to the problem. It was rather like racing west as the sun goes down to make the day longer. If he only had a little more time. But why should he care? The problem had been solved by Linquist, In a sense there was no longer any problem. Immersed in the non-existent problem, Nachman noticed a crowd of people heading toward the auditorium where Lindquist would talk. Thrusting his notes into his briefcase, he joined the crowd. He felt humble, like a member of a religious congregation. The room was large, and almost every chair was taken. A blackboard had been wheeled to the front. As in a theater before the curtain rises, the crowd was full of spirited chatter. Nachman took a chair beside a skinny young man who wore a blue suit of cheap synthetic material. He noticed that the jacket was too big in the shoulders, and the lapels seemed asymmetrical, but it was a new suit, and the young man obviously felt good in it. He smiled at Nachman, revealing large, vigorously thrusting teeth. His eyes were greenish-yellow, a feral hue, and slanted. They had a strange intelligence and a fine, hot, savoring look. The man said, "'You're Nachman.' Nachman nodded. "'I'm Nikolai Chertoff. How do you do? I heard you lecture in Krakow.' They shook hands, Nachman muttering for no reason, "'I don't like to travel.' Chertoff's eyes were unnerving. To turn away or modify their attention, Nachman asked, "'Where are you from, Chertoff?' "'Moscow Communication Labs. You know me?' The eyes and their attention were unchanging." I'm sorry. Don't be so sorry. Nobody knows me. I published one paper in a Russian journal of robotics. Who read it? Nobody. What is the paper about? Of no importance. Who cares? But everybody knows Nachman. It should be Nachman who solved the penultimate conjecture. I walked away from it many years ago. Lindquist solved it. If you say so. What do you mean, if I say so? Do you believe Lindquist solved it? Of course. If I were you, I would be inclined to kill, not believe. Kill? Look, here he is, your worst enemy. There was a flurry of applause as Linquist walked to the front. Nachman was startled, but with a surge of anxious pleasure, he joined the others, including Chertoff, in applause. Nachman whispered, Why did you say that, my worst enemy? If he's a mathematician, what are you? Chertoff's face assumed an expression of disdain, pretending to the attitude he expected in Nachman. There's room for more than one mathematician, Chertoff. Chertoff grinned. Sure, sure, you're in the same field, and you do the same work. But why not? Like Newton and Leibniz, maybe five other mathematicians also discovered the calculus. Plenty of room. The greenish-yellow eyes narrowed with laughter. As Chertoff's head tipped back, his sharp, prominent teeth pointed at Nachman. Nachman laughed, too, though with imperfect delight. Chertoff's comments had touched a nerve. In truth, Nachman's feelings toward Linquist were darkened by thoughts of himself. He should have taken the risk. He should have been more like Linquist, more manly. Enough, Nachman, said Nachman to himself. You didn't fly to San Francisco to reproach yourself. Letting it go and getting free of himself, Knockman got hold of himself. Lindquist was tall and lean and pale. His blond hair was streaked grayish-white. He had cold, light blue eyes and a wide, tragic mouth, bent at the corners as if it might release a wail. He began abruptly, pacing before the blackboard as he talked, stopping to write equations. Evidently, Lindquist had chosen to suggest the nature of his proof rather than exhibit it in exhaustive detail. But each time he wrote an equation, he was taken by a rush of excitement. Unable to contain himself, he proceeded to offer more, then more. His fingers squeezed the chalk hard, and it broke. He continued with the broken piece. And then it too broke, and he snatched up a fresh stick. His English was first-rate. Oxford, faintly mixed with Stockholm. The audience, submerged in silence, was like a many-eyed crocodile, the body suspended under water, inert. The chalk squeaked and pulverized as Linquist dragged it against the board. Beautiful work, thought Nachman. Tears formed, blurring his vision slightly, but then actually, within the first two minutes of Linquist's demonstration, even as Nockman thought it was beautiful, he'd begun to suffer a dark excitement. He tried to ignore it as Linquist progressed. He even nodded once or twice, a motion of assent to Lindquist's voice. And he exerted himself to focus strictly on Lindquist's demonstration. But the excitement persisted, clutched Nachman like a nameless primordial apprehension. Nachman had seen where Lindquist's proof was going and truly wanted to witness its evolution passively, like someone in a train, face pressed to a window, watching the countryside go by. But in the matter of numbers, Nachman was among those who see actively, even aggressively. There are things one knows. Who knows how? And Nachman felt in himself a shadow passing through his cells. He knew Linquist had failed. In his bones and blood, in his teeth and the roots of his hair, Nachman sensed the conceptual error. He might have raised his hand and stopped the demonstration, but it would have been disruptive, unmannerly. Immodest. He'd be obliged to make a show of himself and indicate Lindquist's mistake. Knockman's sense of it was instinctive, not yet analyzed, but he'd have bet his life that, if he tried, he could specify it. He would say, I think I could suggest. Stammering, apologetic, even pretending not to have a good grasp of the problem, Knockman calculated that it would take him about five minutes to demolish the proof and Linquist. Nachman couldn't do it. Not to Linquist, not to anyone in public. But the feeling was there, a blood ferocity. It shocked him. In his silence, doing nothing, he felt as if he'd struck a blow. It didn't make Nachman feel good. The opposite was true. Nachman felt very bad. Linquist was handsome. Heroic facial bones made him look like a courageous knight Knockman, a lowly foot soldier, had knocked Linquist off his horse. On his back, pinned to the earth by the weight of his armor, Linquist was helpless. Knockman kneeled above him with a dagger. Linquist said, "Spare me, Knockman, I'll give you Chantel." "Who? Chantel, my slave girl." Thus, Knockman drifted from mathematics. He no longer cared about the demonstration though he sat like everyone else and watched, as if the evolving proof were valid. Lindquist's chalk continued striking and squiggling rapidly, trailing equations, shedding streams of fine white powder. Wrong, thought Nachman. The word beat tremendously in his heart, and the desire to speak raged in his bowels against an unrelenting force of polite repression. An unknown mathematician could gain a reputation in minutes, if he had the courage to speak up an undue Lindquist. None spoke up. Linquist talked and scribbled. Silence prevailed, as if everyone were hypnotized, possessed by the Swede's fame and extraordinary presence. The mouth was a curve of ancient solemnity. Gaunt, large-boned, his pallor belonged to a man of vision. The talk ended. Nachman participated in the applause. Showing respect for his colleagues and for Lindquist's fine qualities. He even felt affection for Lindquist and hoped somebody would give the Swede a prize. But the penultimate conjecture remained a conjecture. Nachman couldn't deny that he wasn't displeased. There were only a few questions from the audience, and then it was over. Chertoff stood up. Nachman noticed that his bow tie was fixed to his collar with metal clips. His neck was skinny and his Adam's apple slid up and down when he said, If you visit Moscow, Nachman, please do ring me. Reaching into the inside pocket of his hideous jacket, Chertoff withdrew a business card. Nachman took it. I must smoke a cigarette, said Chertoff. He drew one from a pack and lit it, then sighed smoke. What a proof! Nachman said, Were you pleased? Lindquist did good work. What did you think? same as you. Nachman had hoped that they might share a moment of mathematical brotherhood. Instead, like everyone else, Chertoff assented to the demonstration. Nachman felt himself closing within, shrinking from connection with Chertoff. It had always been like this. Nachman worked alone, lived alone, thought alone. He didn't need solidarity with Chertoff, such a peculiar fellow. I see it in your eyes, said Chertoff. You think I let you down. Nonsense! Not nonsense. To me, the proof is good. I'm not you, Nachman. How many numbers have chosen you as a friend? Fifty? Seventy-five? I have maybe five, and I'm not always too sure of their friendship. How many, Nachman? Ninety? Sure, you have ninety. Negatives? Fractions, rational, complex, they all come when you call. For you, mathematics is a big party. But I am like most people, only five. Less is revealed to us, so we think the proof is good. You want to know something? It might as well be good. For six months, a year, good or no good, we'll think it's good. This is the common fate. But you, Nachman, you don't think it's good. You're alone. "'Worse yet, you're frightened. "'Excuse me, I must give my congratulations to Linquist. "'You must run away, see? "'I see that you're impertinent, Chertoff. "'Go, run to him, give him a kiss. "'When you're in Moscow, ring me. "'We'll talk about real things.' Chertoff's feral eyes surrendered their interest in Nachman "'as he glanced toward the corners of the room. "'He half-smiled, then winked slyly at Nachman.' There are more women here than I expected. Knockman joined the group that had formed around Linquist and immediately forgot Chertoff while trying to think how to make a pleasant remark with perhaps the slightest hint, giving Linquist pause. Someone whispered to Linquist, and he looked toward Knockman, spotting him at the edge of the group. Linquist extended his hand, urging Knockman forward. "'Thank you for coming to hear my talk, Nachman!' I feel honored. Shaking Linquist's long, cool surgeon's hand, Knockman decided not to give any hints. Linquist was disarming in his friendliness, which made it harder, not easier, to suggest his failure. Besides, Linquist was extremely quick. He might see everything instantly, regardless of how subtle the hint, and he'd be furious because Knockman hadn't been forthright. Others would sympathize with Linquist. Even when they saw that Nachman was right. No, especially when they saw he was right. Better to keep his mouth shut. Nachman knew what he knew. A difficult knowledge. Why bring himself into bad odor? People need to believe, which requires an irrationality, a suspension of critical faculties, an abnegation of will, a spreading of the thighs. Nachman's colleagues, like St. Teresa, had been ravished, Penetrated with belief. Between a mistake and madness, there was a nourishing relationship. If they knew what Nachman thought, they'd despise and revile him. Chertoff was right. Nachman was frightened. The Swede looked with blue incisiveness into Nachman's brown eyes. What do you say, Nachman? It was all right? As if speaking from a trance, Nachman said, Wonderful. Wonderful? Did I play the cello? I only did mathematics. I saw you in the audience and watched your face. It didn't look full of wonder." Nachman shouldn't have said, wonderful. A bleat of mindless enthusiasm. Helpless to undo the word, Nachman repeated it. Wonderful. Linquist nodded gravely. All right, then. Wonderful. Such praise coming from you is— He made a noise not an intelligible word. His tone was grim, as if he detected in the word wonderful a form of contempt. Do you have time to talk, Nachman? If you want to say something, I want to listen. Now? Nachman had intended to say he had nothing to say. With the question, now, he surprised himself. Where did the word come from? It made him feel like a liar. Lunch Lunch tomorrow. Could you call my room in the morning? You're staying at this hotel? Another question. Of course Linquist was staying at this hotel. The whole conference was here. Linquist looked puzzled and mock-injured, pouting, as if Nachman's question were an oblique insult. Are you being evasive, Nachman? Would you prefer not to meet for lunch? I will, said Nachman. I'll call. His voice was eager, compensating for the imagined insult. The talk had been stressful, making Linquist hypersensitive, but there had been no insult. Unless he'd been struck by a critical thought ray from Nachman's subconscious, a flow of searing, deadly brain light. Nachman remembered Chertoff's question. If he's a mathematician, what are you? He'd meant that Lindquist's existence, merely that, threatened Nachman's, and vice versa. Confused and embarrassed, Nachman backed away, repeating... I'll call, and turned, hurrying out of the lecture hall, then to a men's room, where he shoved into an empty stall, dropped his briefcase, and, no time to spare, threw up. Weak and dizzy, he washed his face. He did it to clean himself, and also not to let himself think. It came to him that he, too, was a believer. He believed there is good and bad. He'd been bad not to speak up when Lindquist asked for his reaction. Nockman saw again the solemn, handsome face and heard the simple appeal. It was all right? Bad not to answer. Bad not to tell the truth. But how could it matter if Nockman's mere existence was potentially lethal? Nockman dried his face and then, staring into the mirror above the sink, said to himself, Let him have the solution. I'll settle for the slave girl. Nockman left the men's room and wandered into the hotel lobby, dazed and disoriented. He looked about for people he knew. Where was Chertoff? To see the hideous blue suit, the ferocious eyes and teeth, would be a blessing. Nachman badly needed someone to talk to. Moving through the crowd, he sensed people turning in his direction. He knew he was being recognized, but he recognized nobody. The crowd seemed too young. The conversations on every side, in Italian, French, German, Russian, Japanese, were estranging. Mathematicians had flown in from everywhere. Nachman had surely met many of them, but he'd never been a sociable fellow, never made sure to remember names. Groups of two and three clustered about the lobby, talking with frenzied energy, as if desperate for communion. Nachman wandered among the groups, feeling awkward and self conscious, scrutinizing name tags, which he considered rude. Some faces were familiar, but no names. He couldn't bring himself to approach a familiar face without knowing the name that went with it. With exasperation, he asked himself why he was in this hotel lobby. Nobody was talking to him. Knockman supposed he looked forbidding, unapproachable. He had no reason to stay. Planes left for Los Angeles every half hour. Knockman could be in Santa Monica, in his own house, well before midnight. Tomorrow, he'd phone the hotel and leave a message at the desk for Linquist, apologizing. Not for missing their lunch, but for what Nachman couldn't tell him, though he'd say it was for missing lunch. Nachman remembered saying, I will. He felt like a criminal, as if he were fleeing, when he saw the taxis at the curb in front of the hotel. But he stepped quickly up to one of them and jumped inside. The airport, he said. The taxi nudged into traffic. Minutes later, it was free of city streets, passing other cars along the highway. Knockman sat with his briefcase in his lap and looked across the gleaming blue of San Francisco Bay to the tawny hills in the east. He wasn't sorry he'd made the trip, yet his heart was fraught with regret, even as it swelled and beat against the bone cage, Nockman's chest, with triumph. Abruptly from this beating and swelling issued a strangled cry, Turn around, please. I must go back. Nockman was more embarrassed than surprised by his outburst. Would the taxi driver think he was crazy? They drove now in loud silence. Nockman sat rigidly, as if braced to receive a blow. His eyes were fixed on the back of the taxi driver's head, expecting him to question the order, or simply to ignore it and drive on to the airport. But the driver took the first exit off the highway, smoothly reversing direction, and headed back to San Francisco. "'Then he said, "'You forgot something at the hotel?' "'The voice was a gentle tenor and seemed incongruous with the man. "'He was big, heavy, broad-shouldered, and black. "'Yes,' said Nockman. "'Happens. "'I'm sorry. I feel very foolish. "'No problem. Maybe you don't really want to leave the city. "'I don't always know what I want. "'That sounds like my wife. "'We go out for ice cream. It's always a crisis.' I say pick any flavor. You don't like it? We'll throw it away and get another. Just pick. But she stands at the counter having a nervous breakdown over vanilla or pistachio. That's it. I'm having a crisis, Nachman said to himself. At the hotel, Nachman went to the desk. He intended to phone Lindquist's room and ask if they could meet that evening. But before he could get the clerk's attention, Chertoff appeared. Nachman, you're still here. "'It was my impression that you were leaving. "'What do you want?' "'Want? Nothing. "'Are you angry, Nachman?' "'What do you want?' "'I believe you are angry.' "'Are you going to tell me to kill Lindquist?' "'Did I upset you?' "'Yes, you upset me. "'I meant no harm. "'My way of speaking is too strong on occasion. "'Forgive me. "'What I said is only because I am your great admirer. "'I would like to be your friend.' "'Let me buy you a drink. Over there is a pleasant bar. I have to phone Linquist. "'Of course, but later. Even next week the bad news will not be too late. "'How do you know I have bad news?' "'As a mathematician, I don't hope to know what you will say. "'As a man, I know everything. Please,' said Shertoff, taking Nachman's arm, "'drawing him away toward the bar. Nachman didn't resist.' Chertoff asked what Nachman would have, then ordered. Shoulder to shoulder at the bar, with drinks before them, Nachman felt an intimacy he needed very much, and yet it seemed he was being subjected to it, somewhat like a child, as if for his own good. Neither of them spoke for a minute. Then Nachman said, "'I should tell him. Do you agree?' He turned to look directly at Chertoff's face. Chertoff, looking with equal directness at Nachman, "'produced a ferocious smile "'as if he'd been given permission to be fully himself. "'His eyes in the smiling pressure "'narrowed with cat-like satisfaction. "'His lips swept wide over the large thrusting teeth. "'He said, "'Nachman, I don't give a shit. "'You're some friend, Chertoff. "'A good friend. "'I think only what you think, "'which is that you should solve the problem.' When I was young, maybe, do you have a better reason to live? What a question. It reminds me, I dreamed during Lindquist's lecture. Only a few seconds, but I dreamed that I was about to kill him. He begged me to spare his life. He promised me his slave girl. I am touched that you are, how do you say it, sharing this dream with me. Nockman shrugged. You know what it means? The spoils of war, Nachman. It is about the spoils of war. Remember the Iliad? Since childhood, I have loved and yearned for Briseis. You know the poem is even more wonderful in Russian than in Homeric Greek. Chertoff boomed the opening lines in Russian. Heads turned along the bar to stare at him. Then he whispered, Nachman, you must take the slave girl. I must? And you must kill Lindquist, too it's not in my nature. You have no choice, my friend, said Chertoff, as he put an arm around Nachman's shoulders and drew him close and kissed him on the cheek in the Russian manner.
0: That was The Penultimate Conjecture by Leonard Michaels, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1999 and can be found in his Collected Stories, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So, Rebecca, before the reading, you mentioned the character Chertoff and his sort of satanic presence in the story, which is interesting because the word Chert or Chort in Russian means devil. Oh. So there's something, obviously, that Michael's planted, even in the naming of this character. Do you think that he is a devil? Is he prompting Nachman to give in to his worst instincts? Or is he actually prompting him to give in to his best ones, you know, to reveal the truth? and solve the problem.
1: I mean, I tend to think his better ones, his more human ones, or less civilized, societally trained instincts, mm-hmm. you know, we're trained to be polite, to not interrupt the talk, to not prove someone else wrong, because that's rude. Mm-hmm. But Chertoff's prompting more honesty and forthrightness. Yeah, I find it hard to think of how
0: exactly Michael's thought about Chertoff. First, because he gave him that name, and then he gave him these, you know, feral, Eyes and sharp teeth, and this sort of like hot, savoring look, and all these little, you know, characteristics which are demonic. But then Nachman is thankful for him, and he actually provides the only moments of humanity that Nachman really experiences in the story. So I, I'm not clear on what role exactly he's playing.
1: I feel like maybe it's id versus superego. You know, Chertoff says, Go get the slave girl and solve the problem, like go for it. I feel like it's the sort of win Mm drive in us the animalistic Mm -hmm. thing inside us that wants to win the race or beat the competitor
0: what do you think would be the moral thing for Nachman to do in this situation
1: moral is hard I mean I think he should meet Lindquist after the talk and politely and calmly show him that the thing is wrong Mm -hmm. and then you know maybe they could try and solve it together or something or I definitely think he should tell the guy he's wrong do you think that he will Mm, I don't know That's tough.
0: Michael's first draft of this story, which I saw, he had Nachman basically running for the airport and never coming back. (gasps) Really? Yeah. And at that time, I talked to him about it feeling unsatisfying and he came up with a new ending. Wow. Which happened a fair amount. So with, you're like
1: a co-author in the story, no, sort of. I, no,
0: but I made him write something more, and I think he knew it needed something more. Well, at the it's time. much
1: better. You know, it's very flat without that sort of third act. And yet we're not quite sure what happens in
0: that third act. He comes back, he has a drink with Chertoff, but we still don't know what he's going to do entirely.
1: If I had to guess, I would say he's probably going to meet with Linquist and let him know that Linquist got it wrong. And, you know, maybe he'll try and solve it on his own. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the equivalent of getting the slave girl.
0: What I find fascinating in this story is all of this kind of underlying war imagery. The problem itself was posed by these cryptographers working in military intelligence during the Second World War. Then you have this Russian and American at the conference sort of talking about hostilities and killing your enemies. And then at the end, they have that conversation about the Trojan War and about Agamemnon stealing Achilles' slave girl and how that had terrible consequences at the time. What do you think of that motif? Why, is, why does that keep coming up here?
1: There probably is a war within himself about primal urges and animalistic stuff versus the very intellectual, clean world of mathematics. To me, part of the story is about Nachman being very different than most of humanity, when Chertoff says there's like a handful of mathematicians, Isaac Newton and so forth, who can do what you can do. Nachman in the intellectual sphere is not just the top 1%. He's the top 0.0000 something 1%. So he's very removed from all of humanity in that way. He doesn't think the same way other people do because he's a lot smarter. And And... What is the ultimate conjecture? If this
0: is the penultimate, what is the ultimate? <laughs> you can't use the word penultimate without knowing that there's an ultimate. Is it those those soldiers who get blown up? Is war the ultimate conjecture? What What do you think?
1: I mean, maybe that is just like what is the meaning of life or what are, no. you know... I wonder too, what, what do you think the penultimate conjecture stands in for? Do you have ideas?
0: What this problem is that, yeah.
1: I mean, it's a fascinating choice of a name for
0: a problem because... You can't have a penultimate without an ultimate. But then why would you call a math problem a penultimate? I mean, there is no ultimate conjecture in math. You know, there's infinity. Did
1: you ask Um, Leonard
0: Michaels this? I didn't at the time. No.
1: Did you ask him what his idea of what the math problem was?
0: No, I was just trying to get him to write an ending to the story. (laughs) 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 Um, What I think is fascinating is that the story works so well without anyone having any idea what the answers are. And at the same time, it's funny.
1: Yeah, it really is funny.
0: I can't always put my finger on what it is that creates the humor in Michael's work. Is it the rhythm of the language? You know, Yiddish was his first language and you can feel that. Is it the sort of existential doubt? What do you think it is?
1: The dialogue is always great. People are saying funny things. There is a lot of heightened not absurdity, but exaggeration in the descriptions, you know, when the audience becomes a crocodile, the descriptions of things being feral, or, you know, the use of the injection of the slave girl, Mm -hmm. you know, things get really heightened, even though this is a meeting of boring mathematicians talking about math, and just the intensity of the feelings in such a calm environment. There's an interesting thread about Linquist being so tall and handsome, like even though he's older, he's got like these beautiful facial bones and he's very Swedish and blonde and, you know, mm-hmm. like a tall, handsome his, guy. His beautiful blue eyes
0: looking into Nachman's brown eyes. Right. Yeah. Beautiful
1: blue eyes and he's super famous and well-known. So he is sort of the Uber man, whereas we don't get much physical description of Nachman here, but yeah. it's implied that he's not as tall and yeah. not as hunky. Yeah. And the Russians, definitely not hunky. Not hunky. They've got very sharp teeth and and feral yellow eyes. So I think think there's a thread about like winners versus losers, you know, who are the winners in the world, the people that get all the money and all the fame. And, you know, sometimes they don't even have a valid idea or...
0: Yeah. And at the same time, Lindquist is only known for work that was done with other people and for asking devastating questions. That Not answering them. Right. (laughs) Um, But he's very decent in their exchange. And it obviously matters to him what Nachman thinks of his work.
1: Right. That's what makes it so poignant is we can't just dismiss linguist. He put in the effort to try and solve the problem. And then he has his own sneaking suspicion somehow that maybe he isn't right. And he clearly knows that Nachman might be the smarter guy because he very much values Nachman's opinion. So we can't just write him off as a total jerk. Because
0: no, no, and in the middle of his sort of enthusiastic frenzy of explanation during his talk, he's clearly found time to look at Nachman and see that his face was not full of wonder. <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> so there's self-doubt everywhere.
1: Right. It's not so easy as this person's good or bad. or yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very dark humor. I mean, I think it's a kind of a dark story. Nachman's a lonely guy who's going back to a lonely apartment and this is his big excitement and he just went out of a dark urge to see someone else either fail or mm-hmm. succeed. And... and and for that, he breathed playing on the plane. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, there's <laughs> another sort of exaggeration that becomes funny. Yeah. Although yeah. it's not actually that much of an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> been on planes lately.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you.